glad to be able to uh, open our Bibles together. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalms 121 this morning, so uh, it's toward the end of the book of Psalms. They get pretty short um, at the back part of the book, um, so if you open up the book of Psalms, um, if uh, you open up to Psalms 119 and wonder if it's ever going to end, it will. Um, just keep turning a few pages, and at the, uh, at the end of that, uh, you'll, you'll find Psalm 120. Psalm 121 is going to be our text this morning. Um, we're going to be studying the book of Psalms, um, particularly this section of Psalms, for the next few weeks. Um, I've never preached through these texts before, never really given a lot of attention to the Psalms in general. It's just so hard. It's such a big book, right? And if we were to go book chapter by chapter through the book of Psalms, you all might find somewhere else to go uh, to hear something different. Not that the book, the Word isn't great, and not that the Psalms aren't great, but sometimes um, it, uh, it's good to, turn, to, to move around a little bit. But God leads, and, and God's Word is good, and, and He gives us His Spirit to direct us and I feel like that uh, he wants us to study um, some of these very powerful, some may be very familiar. I think this one particularly you're pretty familiar with. You probably sang it before. We're going to sing it, uh, sing it before we leave today. And you probably are familiar with a few other songs that are inspired by this ancient song, um, Psalm 121. So if you opened up and you find your pl- found your place, Psalm 121, we'll read it together. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence come my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve and keep your soul. The Lord shall preserve, he shall keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth even further more. Maybe you know this about the book of Psalms, but I think this is important to know before we kind of dig into this one and, of course, the few more to come. Um, The book of Psalms is an ancient hymn book. So much like we have in our hymnal racks, much like you've held, I'm sure, many times in your life, um, the book of Psalms is an ancient hymn book, an ancient worship folder, uh, whatever term you want to use. And like most hymnals, um, it's divided up in a few different ways. Um, If you were to pick up one of our hymnals, you would pick up one of your favorite hymnals, um, most of of them are divided up um, based on the type or based on the style based on the air they were written in. Um, hymnals are usually, the, the hymns are usually divided up um, based on the kind of song they are, whether it's a an invitational hymn, right? They're all in the same section. The Christmas hymns are all in the same section. Uh, the, the hymns about Easter, all in the same section. Uh, the hymns about Thanksgiving and so forth are all kind of grouped together. And in Psalms, it's not like um, most or pretty much any other book of the Bible, wherein most books of the Bible are written in chronological order, right? Genesis begins with the beginning beginning, and it goes all the way to the days of Joseph, right? If you read the story of Exodus, it begins with slavery in Egypt, and it ends with them being out of Egypt. So most books of the Bible, even the letters that Paul wrote, they're written in a sequential, I wrote this first, and I wrote this last um, type of, of order. But Psalms, uh, the Psalms are not written in an order like most other books of the Bible. Um, they are obviously individual songs that are compiled together um, to, to form this hymnal, this 
worship folder that uh, of over 150, 150 um, individual songs, individual psalms. Uh, the psalms are a compilation of poems and prayers that were set to music. They were sang by Israel during the Old Testament period that were brought together to form an ancient book of liturgy, um, an ancient, really the original worship book. If you were to attend worship in the early days when they gathered together in, in the uh, communities of Israel, if you were to attend worship at the temple, if you were to attend even a synagogue in today's Jude, uh, form of Judaism, most likely you're going to sing one of these ancient psalms because in the original Hebrew, they're set to music. And whereas our English doesn't really do justice to the rhythm and the cadence of the the, the songs, the original text, they would actually be easy to sing, and we've actually took some of them and, and set them to music, and it turns out pretty well. Um, but all the psalms, all the psalms were written to be set to music and sang to express and encourage faith in God. So they don't hide their purpose, right? They assume you're a believer. They assume that you should be a believer if you aren't a believer. These songs are written to help you and to teach us how to sing, how to put our faith in God, and to encourage us to put our faith in God. And there are many different types of psalms. Many different types of psalms. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are laments or songs that you would sing at funerals or, or during sad times. There's psalms that are reflecting, psalms that are about making resolutions. There's psalms that are really anthems, much like we have anthems in our country. Many of the psalms were anthems for the nation of Israel um, as a way to express their patriotism and express their nationalism and their pride for what God had done and what they were going to do for him. Uh, many of the, song, uh, the psalms were ballads. Um, they told a story, much like in early America and in the 18th or the 19th century, um, ballads were a big thing in our country, singing about the historical events um, in a kind of a, a pompous, very um, celebratory way. Um, that there are plenty of ballads in the in the Book of Psalms, and, and there are some that are prayers that are really good to go back and, and pray through and, and use as a template for prayer, even in our day. And, and most of and many of our worship songs um, have their origin and take their cues from these ancient songs. And, and, and the best worship songs, the best songs, uh, whether they're a hymn or a worship song, however you categorize them, the best songs, um, new and old, um, the ones that are worth singing, all rely on what has been inspired by God in the book of Psalms. Uh, rather than trying to come up with something fresh, um, there's a beautiful trend, especially in, in, in today's worship um, environment, in today's the, the, people, the folks that are putting out worship music, um, they are so heavily rooted in the songs, the language, and, and the format of, of the psalms written not just by King David. You've probably heard uh, David as the psalmist of Israel. He wrote a lot of them, uh, but his, his sort of following would go on to write many um, inspired by him and in that style. Um, Solomon wrote a few. Moses wrote one. Um, the, 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 the choir or the, the music leaders in the nation of Israel wrote many of them. So uh, they're not all um, given, or they're not all attributed to a, a certain author or a certain writer, um, but many of them, of course, were written by David. Um, the Psalms aren't about what God might give us. Um, you know, they're, 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 uh, there's a trend, and there was a trend for a while in worship music, and it was more about, hey, this is what God might do for me rather than who God is. The Psalms are, in the best worship songs, by the way, the Psalms are about who God is and what God has done and praising his name for that. And, and, and getting encouraged and excited around um, who our God is. And, and, and they wire our hearts 
to him. Uh, the, the Psalms repeat themselves a lot, um, and that's on purpose. That's not just because they didn't know what else to write. Uh, the Psalms repeat themselves to encourage memorization and to, to, to etch the words onto our hearts so that we might get this kind of um, as a part of our system and, 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 and part onto our soul. So something unique about the Psalms, though, is that they weren't just written to be sung in a building like this um, or in an assembly of worship at all. Um, many of them were written for what would uh, relate to songs songs and music that we see today played by marching bands, um, played in parade processions. Uh, many of them were written to be sang by big bands of people that were moving from one place to another. And the reason is, um, Israel kind of had its beginnings as a traveling band of people, right? Um, leaving Egypt going to Israel, um, they would spend much, much of their life moving from one place to the other, and, and they, would, they would sing songs while they traveled as a way to put their faith in God, as a way to rally around their cause that was from the Lord. And, and, and again, Israel was born and, and would always be this traveling band of refugees bound for a promised land. Even after they got into the land of Israel, they dreamt of something even greater that God had promised their ancestors. They traveled originally for 40 years, and their sense of community was rooted in their um, national identity. They were galvanized and refined during that era, and when they settled into the promised land, as they separated into their own tribes, into their own little corners of the nation, they still shared this national identity. They still were kind of wired by this corporate DNA and they dreamt of, and they would organize festivals uh, to kind of rekindle that spirit they had when they were in the wilderness. Even though that wasn't the best of times, the camaraderie and the community and the family idea of, of that, it was something they still longed for, and even their descendants would look back to. Um, and they would worship together as one people under one God. Many of the Psalms feature lyrics and verses that look back on those events of Exodus, the events when God originally saved the nation and established the nation, when he forged the nation out of Egypt, and he did many wonderful things, right? He uh, he, uh, he faced off against Pharaoh, and he brought the plagues on the land of Egypt. He brought uh, the Israel, Israelites across the Red Sea. He brought them manna from heaven. He brought quail from out of due, out of due season and in, out of the uh, area. He did amazing things for them, and they would often look back in these songs at what God had done years and years before. One of the psalms that um, is kind of one of these reflecting psalms is from Psalms 77, and the, the writer says, I will remember the deed of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. Now notice, though, the beginning of that, of that verse, is all, the beginning of that stanza is all about what God had done, but the close of that is, you are the God who still works wonders. As if they were singing out, not just looking back, but maybe looking forward, hoping that God wasn't done doing mighty things. Now, we sing earlier about a mighty God, the, the what a mighty God that we have, and, and mighty is one of my favorite words to describe God with, one of my favorite words to ascribe to God, really appropriate word to describe God with. A, a quick Google search of the term um, brings up an Oxford definition, really the most common de definition of the word mighty, sounds something like this. It, it means to possess great and impressive power or strength, especially on account of size. 
So when something or someone is described as mighty, we imagine them, we get the idea that they are great, they are impressive, that they have no opposition that can stand against them. And we, we, we like to picture them, and really the, the, the nature of the word imagines them as very big, as very great, as more than we can imagine. And, and when something or someone is described as mighty, we get the idea that the odds are usually or always in mighty's favor, right? Mighty doesn't lose, right? Mighty doesn't run out of power, right? Mighty doesn't suddenly become less mighty over time. Mighty is forever. Mighty is something that you continually reap the benefits from and you continually can see the wonders of. See, Israel sing about the might of God displayed in years past, but come on, the reason they sing about the mightiness of God wasn't just because they were waxing nostalgic about it. They sang about God being mighty for the same reason we sing about God being mighty. They sing with anticipation that God might still be just as mighty. Maybe his might could make wrong things right for them too. Right? They sing about God's mightiness for the same reason we sing about God's mightiness. Maybe he is still as mighty. Maybe the things that are wrong in our world, the things that are wrong in our lives, maybe he can make them right too like he did for the Israelites long ago, right? I mean, come on, we don't celebrate might just because it's strong in a vacuum, right? We celebrate, we get excited about might not because of the idea of mightiness. We're drawn to and we applaud might that has displayed its power, especially in the face of improbability. But every generation removed from those glory days, they wondered, they worried, just like we do. Almost they were resolved in their faith that maybe their mighty God was just a memory. Maybe his wonders were just meant for melodies at this point. But out of sheer duty, they continued to sing, they continued to believe, even if their faith was a little shaken, if only to pass the wonders for the next generation. Another psalm reflects like this. We will not hide from them their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deed of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God the Lord. They committed and tried their best to to obey and pass on, but deep down, deep down, they had a very pressing question. Deep down, they were worried, and they wondered, and they were curious. If they set their hope in God, would they find help from God? There was God just this idea that made them feel better in the moment of the service but didn't actually do anything for them or help them in some tangible, practical way? If they set their hope in God, would they find, and here's the thing that we all struggle with, here's the thing, that, the reason why maybe somebody that you've tried and talked to about the Lord for a long, long time and they just don't seem to bite because the idea of hope is amazing. But if there isn't actually help, it's all talk. It doesn't actually offer anything. See, Psalm 21 was written as a reminder that God didn't just offer this band-aid of hope, but he actually provided real help. Before we get too deep, the inspiration behind this psalm is so unique, we got to talk about it. 
after Israel settled the land, the people worshipped and wandered in their own corners around their own local shrines and altars. But this was very much a national cry, a national desire. Notice the psalm begins by saying, God is my help, but then it unfolds by talking about God being the help of all of Israel because they were all one people. See, there was a disconnect in Israel between who they were in the early days and who they had become since they settled the land. Particularly around how disjointed they had become, how they missed those days being one united family, leaning on each other and leaning on God together. They wanted and they needed a place to come together and let their voice come up before God as one body before Him. Maybe then they could get through to Him because there was this disconnect within their hearts between hope and help. They were holding on to hope, but they weren't finding much help. Maybe that's the mentality that you've come to this house today with. Maybe today you think, maybe I'll get through to God this time. Maybe this time I'll do more than just find something to put my hope in. Maybe I'll not just feel better for a minute, but maybe I'll actually find something that can help me and actually make a difference in my life because I'm not just looking for religion, right? There's plenty of that out there, and some people are numbed by it, but I, hey, I understand you guys, you're smarter than that, right? You know that that is empty and it's hollow. You're looking for something that actually can make a difference. You're looking for help. We all are. We're all like the children of Israel who came together en masse seeking reliable and lasting help, seeking to take hope to the only logical conclusion, which is to finding help. See, after years of praying separately, King David promised to give Israel a dedicated house of worship. Rather than funding several smaller houses, they wanted a single location that would emphasize and highlight Israel's oneness is history and identity, a single temple dedicated to God built in the capital city of Jerusalem wherein they hoped and prayed God would inhabit and most of all that God's spirit could be found and felt by any and all who worshiped there, that anybody that showed up, anybody that came together would find that help that Moses talked about, that the ancients talked about. Unlike today's church activities, they didn't worship collectively or corporately every week. Yes, they could visit every week. There was always activities every day in the temple, offerings and, and special services. But the reason why they opted for these very, um, throughout the year, these temple, often quarterly services, because they wanted as many people from all over the land to be able to travel and attend. And it just wasn't logistical for everybody to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every week because they were traveling hundreds of miles by foot, often by, uh, by entourage. What, what, what would make Israel's coming together all the more special and powerful, they didn't just go down the road to a building. They would travel across the country. They'd make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, hundreds, even thousands of miles away from their home. Several times a year, they would come to this temple that was dedicated to God. These temple services were national holidays. They had one in March and May, September and December where the nation would come together in one city and a city of a few thousands would suddenly become a city of hundreds of thousands. It would enlarge, it would triple, quadruple in size overnight. Calling back to their origin story, Worship leaders and tribal leaders in the land came together and began writing and producing songs that the bands of people would sing together as they traveled, as they ascended Mount Zion. Over time, and all these years later, these 15 psalms are recognized and are called Songs of Ascent. And from Psalm 20, 
one, or Psalms 20, actually, to Psalm 134, you find these psalm songs of ascent. And we're looking at Psalm 21, obviously, today. And, and some of our favorite songs find their origin in these often overlooked psalms. The cry of these songs is one for healing and guidance and unity and more to be spread across and over the whole nation. The idea was to give a voice to all that, were, uh, to, to all that was in the hearts and minds of the people as they ascended this mountain, it was a picture of the struggle that they faced every day, looking for the solution, founding God. The songs that were written and were sang by these bands of, of travelers really were templates inspired and designed to draw out the true desires of our hearts. And that's what worship is all about. That's why the words and songs we sing are so important and why so many songs might be quality music and have catchy words, but if they don't draw out our true heart's desire, they're not doing their jobs and we don't get any closer to God as a result. As they would band together and head towards Jerusalem, as they would ascend Mount Zion, they would sing these songs together. They would set their minds and their hearts on God because they had learned, they knew they needed help from God. They knew that something wasn't as it should be in their hearts. And if we're being honest, all of us know something isn't always as it should be in our hearts. Listen, they didn't ascend Jerusalem because they were looking for signs and wonders, awe-inspiring flashes of brilliance and beauty. They weren't going to the temple to see fire or to see water part and all the things they had heard about of old. As they had settled the land, as they had dispersed throughout the land, it became apparent that they needed a different kind of help. They needed a practical, lasting kind of help. You'll remember, when they became free people and God was leading them through the desert, as soon as they got a little ways from Egypt, God started handing out laws to the people of Israel. You know the story. They got to a mountain and God started giving them thou shalt and thou shalt not. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were free. We didn't ask for rules. Just let us enjoy our freedom. And God's response over and over again to them was that freedom is only found in following the Lord. Without his word to guide us, we will find ourselves bound once more. Because within every one of us is a nature, a tendency, an eagerness even to do things that's contrary to what's best for us. It's unexplainable. It's undeniable, though. It's real. And it's there inside every one of our hearts. We fight against it daily, and Israel found out. Israel found out as they moved into the promised land, as they got settled. They're more pressing than the threats from villains or disasters was their own sinful nature. You can call it rebellious. You can call it self-destructive. You can call it fumbling, whatever it is. More threatening than the villains of this world and disasters from this world is the nature inside of us that will destruct if it goes unchecked. Suddenly, all of those laws about how to treat one another, how to honor God were so relevant, and while they respected the laws, their nature didn't care what God said. It's like the more they tried to do what was right, the more they found themselves in situations where doing the right thing seemed impossible. You been there? The more they disproved of their wrong choices, the, more, the, the less prone they were to do the right thing and less desirable it seemed. It made no sense, but come on, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Most of us would say, we wish we didn't do half the stuff we do. But there's a will within us that's stronger than we can actually, we actually want to admit. There's a will within us that we don't even try to suppress. Most of us would love to be and do differently, but we just can't figure out how. We just want some help. 
Again, the Bible is always given a voice to our struggles. There's a verse, there's actually a few verses that really describes this struggle that we all face. Romans chapter 7, follow along with me. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, men, you should try this next time. You mess up. I don't understand my own actions. See if they'll let you off the hook, right? It works every time for me. I, don't, I didn't want to do it, but I just keep doing it. I don't know why. I, just, I don't understand. You see, it's in the Bible. I don't understand. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Even if you don't believe the Bible is, God, is, is the absolute standard for life. The idea that we feel guilty, the idea that we don't like what we always do and we would like to do something that we always can do, it's our own way of saying, yeah, there's a standard and I can't measure up to it. My own standard, God's standard, whoever's standard, I don't meet that standard. So now, it is no longer I who do it, the writer says, but he says that sin is dwelling within us and is actually shading and tinting and tempting our every decision to be wrong. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. Right? And now we make jokes about it, but that is actually something we all struggle with every day, isn't it? We want to do something better, but we don't think we're able, right? And sometimes it's a feeling that you just can't get rid of, right? And everybody has an opinion how to get rid of it, but you just don't see the ability or the wherewithal to get it away. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, hey, I mean, whether you believe the Bible is true or not, man, that is, that is, a, that is a verse, right? That is so true. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, he's not saying that we're not responsible for our actions. The writer's just saying, hey, there's something in me that is pushing me in the direction that I don't really want to go in, but I can't really articulate what it's, what's going on. It's just this nature that seems like it's got a hold of me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, or I want to do the right thing. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So here's where Israel was. We're free, but we're not free. We're no longer slaves in Egypt, but we're still slaves in our land. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who can help me from this body, from this bondage of death? That's where a lot of us are at, isn't it? It's okay to admit it. This was Israel as they spent all those years isolated, alone, and struggling as they came together. Psalm 121 is one of the songs they would sing as a way of hoping that there was help on the way. A way of proclaiming that their God was more than just hope for a better life someday. He was help for a better life today. See, a lot of you come to church, a lot of us have been in church all our life. We've heard about hope for better someday. And I know, y'all, I know, hey, I'll be the first to admit it. I used to sit in church all the time thinking, listen, I don't want to hear about hope for someday. How about help for today? 
because I need it right now. And the Bible's a big book, right? I mean, hey, God had to write something about helping me right now. <laughs> then I started reading it, and I feel like figured out he wrote a lot. But it wasn't just what he wrote, it was what he can do. Notice over and over again in this psalm, we have this phrase, the Lord will keep you. The Lord will preserve you. The word keep there um, can mean preserve or guard. It literally speaks of the job of a watchman on a city tower. Now, back in the day, right, every city, every major city had a wall, had a, a wall surrounding it, and they would have watchmen on every certain point of the wall that would do what the title suggests. They would watch. And the watchman's job were to keep evil out and to make sure that peace stayed within. They were to look to the, to look to the, to the surrounding to make sure that nobody evil was coming toward them, but they were also to look inside the city and make sure that the peace was being maintained, right? And if it wasn't being maintained, they would call someone to, hey, go put that fire out, go watch that person, go see what they're doing, go try to help them, but hey, I've got to send the army, I've got to send the military out here to fight this band of evil coming in, but we need to make sure we address the peace that is coming undone within. So they had their hands full, right? But the idea is that God is a bigger, is bigger than just a watchman. He is our keeper. He is our creator who is also our savior who is doing his job to keep evil out of us and to maintain peace within us. You hear that? So if you're wondering, is there help to be found in God? Is this just a psalm of hope? Or is this an actual truth that we can rely on and depend on and turn to as actually a, a way of getting help? God is our helper. A relationship with him will keep evil out of us and keep peace, maintain peace, foster peace within us. Now, let me ask you, does that describe your relationship with God right now? Is he your helper? Is he making a genuine dynamic difference within your life? Are you seeking his help? Are you depending on him for help to keep evil out of you, to maintain uh, peace within you, to keep things that will destroy you away, to protect and improve the joy in your heart? See, they would sing this song that led them to a higher place against life's hardest climbs. They'd spent years disconnected from God. They came together with anticipation and expectation that God would and could help them. They were starved from God. But let's just make it real for us today. Nobody, maybe some of you, but the majority of Americans, the majority of people in today's world, especially believers, we're not starved from God. We have so much information about Him. Radio channels, websites, right, devotions, Bibles on every point, every shelf. We've been in church all our life. We aren't starved of God. I'll tell you the problem though is we're oversaturated with God-ish. Now, ish means uh, something some extent, a watered-down version. Did you hear me? We're oversaturated with things that seem like or are similar to or are connected to God, but we've missed the real thing. What I mean by that is that we are so routine and raw in our worship, we don't come to this house anticipating that God can help us. See, religion turns us, our faith into a way of appearing as if we don't need help. See, religion has trained many of us to try to hide our problems rather than plea for help. 
Religion has trained us to believe that Christianity is a cover-up, a way of appearing holy, a way of thinking we're better than most. Christianity is and always has been about finding help with Jesus from Jesus. Forget the cover-up, forget the pretend and the ceremony. That's what makes it so empty. Because religion deceives us into thinking the goal is pretending to be okay, not pleading because we're not okay. See, a lot of us, we've convinced ourselves that things really can't get better. All we can really do is pretend and hope for a better day someday. We say things like, well, that's just how I am. That's how we've always been. Things just will change someday, but they'll never change for me. Not now, not in this life. Maybe one day, maybe someday, maybe someday else, somewhere else. But you know what? I've given up on different. I've given up on help. And if you're a believer and you've given up on help, God is shouting from heaven to you today, saying you don't have to give up because I haven't given up on you. We've accepted lies. Listen, when we believe in a version of Christianity that says there's no help for me right now, the enemy celebrates. He says, keep it up. I love that kind of Christianity because it is empty. It is dead. It comes down to this question. Is our faith only about having hope or is it all about finding help? Because the first part just gets you halfway there. Don't get me wrong, hope is a beautiful thing, but only insofar that it leads us and produces help. Hope might get our attention, but if it never evolves or produces something tangible and practical, if hope never leads to help, we will lose hope. And that's why many of you walked away a long time ago, isn't it? Because you were told to believe, but you didn't find anything that actually made a difference, and you lost your hope. And some of us are just part of that routine religion right now, and we're, we've kind of just gotten numb to the fact that we actually can get better. <laughs> Proverbs 30, 13 says that hope that is deferred or delayed will make our hearts sick. See, if hope doesn't help, if hope doesn't turn into help, then the hope was helpless, right? That's the definition of no help. If hope is helpless, we might as well be hopeless, Right? And as we face life's many hills to climb, we need help that only God can give. So this is a big deal. Is our faith, is our church services, is our Christian walk, is the center of it all just a wish? Is it just a hope so? Or is it better than that? I, I want it to be better than that, don't you? Now, there are a lot of opinions about this. People take it every direction they can take it. For many and most Christians, the reality is that our faith is contained to buildings like this, enshrined in places like this. Our faith is a relic or a routine, a ritual or an idol. More about ideas and values, and week after week we come into buildings like this. We sing about hope, but we never get any help. And it shouldn't be that way. We come and we go with areas of our lives in need of help, whether our relationships, our morality, our finances, our priorities, our planning, whether we agree or identify that we need help in any of these areas or not, the truth is that our faith doesn't seem to be making a difference in our lives. And come on, if our faith is in a mighty God who has something to say about everything, shouldn't He make a difference for and within everyone? And I don't blame us for not getting the help. I think a lot of us haven't been led to the place to get the help. 
Should we be able to live and plan and spend and save without God making a difference in framing what we do and how we do it? Should we believe and behave in a whatever way when it comes to our morality, our politics, our personal, our professional lives without consulting and thinking about what God would have us to do? Come on, we even believe that God became a person. He became one of us to walk in our shoes, to live in our places, to embody the ideal life. We believe that Jesus ended up on a cross. He ended his life on a cross, not for a fault of his own, but for every fault of ours, right? That's what we believe. We believe that Jesus died not just for the stuff that we've done wrong, but for every inclination and intention we have to do wrong. And if he did that for us, that means there's help, right? It gets better. I'm not here to talk down to anybody or beat up on anybody, but this is where we might have some tension. We don't like to admit, we don't want to admit that we might be wrong sometimes or have some wrong areas of our life. We have a tendency to do some wrong things, though, don't we? We all have areas of our lives that we wish and hope we could change. The anxiety that we allow to dominate our minds and control our thoughts. You wish there was help for that, don't you? The anger that you allow to fester and the bitterness and the jealousy and the unforgiveness. You know what breaks my heart as a pastor? Because I have this conversation more than I have any other conversation as a pastor. People come to me sometimes and they come to me about a relationship that's broken. And it's awful and it's gut-wrenching and it breaks my heart and I feel bad for both sides, but I'm really sad for the person in front of me that's crying and upset. But the conversation usually ends with somebody looking at me saying, is it okay that I can't forgive them? And I want to tell them, why are you asking me that? You know what the Bible says. You know what is right. But you're asking me that. We ask that. We want an exemption because we hope that will make us feel better. But it's not going to make us feel better, is it? Because we know all too well the misery of harboring any kind of sin. Listen, people come to me all the time, is this wrong? And they hope that if I say it's not, they'll feel better, but it's not going to make them feel better, right? Because sin will eat us alive. It destroys lives, and we know it, don't we? And a lot of us are right there right now in the middle of it. The lust we entertain that doesn't take the place of intimacy, it just makes the void wider. The fear we give into, the greed we buy into, the thing in you that you can't suppress that you hate, but you're just convinced you're stuck with it. Come on, there's a ton about ourselves that we're not happy with, a ton that we wish we could change. And if we're Christians, we ought not just have hope and wish and wonder. We ought to be able to find actual and real help. So by all means, faith in Him should make some kind of difference. It should offer some kind of help. Because the story of Jesus doesn't end with a cross. It continues with a resurrection. He came back to life for the win of everybody. To transform hope into help. The cross is our hope, but the resurrection is our help. And when we place our faith in Jesus, the one who rose from the grave, we don't just receive hope for someday, maybe we receive help. For every day, definitely. So, when we find ourselves like the voice, like the template, when we find ourselves saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body and from this bondage of death? We can confidently say, 
Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have found the help they dreamt of, they were looking for. Woo, right? Thanks be to God. We can say that together. Even if you don't believe it, you can say it with me. I think it'll make you feel better. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you feel wretched, if you feel undone, if you feel broken, if you feel helpless, come on, there is help, there is deliverance, there is salvation, there is freedom, there is power in Jesus. He's more than just hope for a better future. He's our help for a better today. Not just hope for the afterlife. He is help for this life. Listen, there's a heaven, and we're going there someday. It's better than what we got now right now. But if you're waiting on heaven to make things better for you personally, for your marriage, for your relationships, for your finances, for your worldview, for the choices you make when nobody's looking, listen, you don't have to wait. Right? And God's not saying, I'll take it away if you don't change. God's saying, I just want you to know what I've got for you right now. I don't want you to be miserable. Paul actually says that if we have hope in, if we only have hope in some idea, we're miserable. His resurrection punctuates God's might and God's power. We can lift our eyes up to the hills. Our help comes from the Lord, our Creator, our Savior. Our faith, and this is if, you, if you're wondering about what do we believe, our faith is built on the record and based on the reality that we worship and serve a mighty God. His record is outstanding. His ability is unrivaled. The Lord is our helper. He is our keeper. Romans 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, He repeats Himself because He wants you to get that, right? Did you, did you hear that? If the Spirit of the resurrected Savior dwells in you, by faith He can and He wants to, and if you're a believer, He does, that it, as he raised Jesus from the grave, he can raise you up and give you new life. That's a whole lot of help, isn't it? It's resurrecting help. Resurrecting help that will keep death out of us and keep life within us. We find our help in Jesus. More than that, help finds our heart and will keep it forever. We find our ascent we find our help in him. Let me pray for you. Father, I love, I love, I love, love the fact that you did not just dangle hope in front of us and say it might get better. You sent Jesus to find us, just tell us that it can get better. God, I, there's somebody in the house today that they've got some emotions that are ruling them and controlling them. It might be fear, it might be anxiety, it might be, uh, it might be anger, it might be jealousy, it might be bitterness, it might be greed. I don't know what it is, but somebody has some things in their heart that is just eating them alive. And God, they've, they've been told to hope for things to get better, but God, you've said today that you want to help them. They can come, they can surrender that to you, they can find help from you. Your spirit can help them and guide them to a new and better life. 
Lord, there's somebody here today, they're fighting addiction, they're fighting, they're fighting some sort of a relationship pain, they're fighting something that just continues to fester and get worse and worse. And they've been told all their life that religion is just about hiding that stuff. But Jesus has said today, I want you to bring that stuff out. I want you to confess it. I want you to lay it down. I want you to be bold about it. I want you to plead, for me, plead to me about it. And I can help you with it. Because our help comes from the Lord. Not just our hope is in the Lord. We have help from the Lord. So God, I want you to fill this house with your spirit. I want you to go to every heart today. And I want you to remind them, if they're not receiving the help that you've offered them, why not? They can. Not what they do in this house that makes a difference, but it's what they make, the decision they make in their heart. They can change their life. Father, I know you're just one prayer away. You're just one step away. So we pray that you would be with us always. In Jesus' name, amen.